Well, that was some good singing. I was thinking this morning, I'd, I come in early on Sundays and get my heart ready to preach and to interact with you and with the Word. And I was thinking this morning about the value of worship before preaching and how God in his wisdom has set things up in this way for us and for many churches. This isn't unique to grace by any means, but the way that our hearts are prepared to receive the word of God through singing songs like we just sang this morning is so unique. I cannot imagine walking in the door and just preaching a sermon before my heart has been warmed by the word sung and the word heard. So I just, I appreciate so much those who lead us in worship and their intentionality and hearing your voices sing with us. It, it is a help to me to worship together before I step in the pulpit. And that is for free. There is no charge for that this morning. So today we are in week three of a four-week series on suffering and the Christian life. And we're taking the month of January to look from different angles and from different perspectives at what it means to suffer as a Christian. The first week, Aaron White started our service on the 8th with a message of God's purpose in human suffering, that it is to refine our faith, to equip us to be able to be compassionate and comforting to others when they go through things. Last week, we saw what it means to suffer for Christ, that when we live our lives in obedience to the word of God, there will be consequences to that way of living. The Bible promises us that. And now this morning, we have the privilege of looking at what it means to suffer with Christ. And I often wish that our Sunday morning services were about twice as long as they are. I was just pausing for an amen there, but I don't, <clears throat> I don't think I'm going to get that. But my point is that, we, so we take this whole thing about suffering in the Christian life, and we're, we're breaking it up into four weeks. And what would really be good is if we could just say it all at once. And, but but well, as it is, we end up breaking things up into week-by-week week sections, which is fine. But I just want to acknowledge that as we go through these things, and even as we preach through books regularly, there are going to be things that don't get dealt with. We, we can't deal with every aspect of this in one Sunday or even in four Sundays. So, for example, last week we talked about suffering with Christ or for Christ and what it means to live that kind of life that will draw the kind of attention that you get when you live your life in biblical obedience. But what we did not talk about was what about other kinds of suffering? What about things that we go through that are not directly a result of the testimony of the gospel? What about things like dealing with our own sin and the consequences of our sinful actions? What about dealing with the consequence of other people's sin? What about things like Natural disasters, sickness. I mean, in general, we could just put an umbrella over it and say the effect of sin in our world. What do we do with that? And that's what we did not have time to talk about last Sunday. So it may have seemed kind of incomplete, like, okay, we, we talked about this, but you didn't touch on that. 
And the reason I didn't is because I wanted to spend a whole week now talking about what it means. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the context, or maybe origination would be a better word, no matter how it starts, we are all going through some kind of suffering in our life. And the comfort of the Christian, the comfort that we have as children of God that those who are apart from Christ do not have is that when we suffer as Christians, we suffer with Christ. There is no solo suffering in the Christian life. And I want to show you that from the scriptures because every one of us is either at this moment or will be soon suffering in some way. And I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer here. I'm just saying that this is the reality of living in a world that is affected with sin. There is nowhere you can go on this planet and be freed from the effect of sin. Not in your closet at home and not in the public sphere. It's everywhere. So as a pastor, I want to equip you. How do you handle that? What do you do when you go through things that are not your responsibility? You didn't cause the situation directly. You are in some ways a passive participant in the sense that something happened and now you are dealing with the effect of that. How, what do we do with that? Well, that's my job this morning. We read the scriptures. We encourage one another that when you go through difficulty, you're never alone, but Christ is with you. So I want to explain this morning what it means to suffer with Christ. And there will, of course, be overlap with other areas and things we talk about, but that is what we're going to do. I'm going to show you four texts, two from Jesus, one from the book of Hebrews, and one from Paul. And all of these texts, in, in some way, from various angles, show us the same reality, that in the Christian life, the things that we go through are never alone, but we go through them with Jesus. And then we'll close by talking about what that actually looks like to suffer with Christ. And we're never going to be able to cover everybody's specific situation. This is why I said last Sunday that it is so important that we understand the teaching of the Bible in principle as well as in specific application. Because you can't chapter and verse every unique situation of your life. But you can gain from the principled teaching of the Bible. And so that's what we're doing today. We'll have some application, but I want to encourage you, learn the principles so that you're not thrown off your feet when hard things come in your life. So that's where we're going today. And before we get into our text, I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me, and we will begin. Father in heaven, we, we pause now to invite you to be here with us. And we, we don't do that as a way of giving you permission. You are not waiting for us to ask you here. You are here among us. You dwell among your people by your spirit and where we gather and worship together. You are here. We know that, Lord. But, but this invocation, this request for you to be here among us, I, I want it to reflect the posture of our hearts, that we admit, God, that we cannot rightly understand your word without your help. And so please come and open our understanding. Would you remove any blinders that are over our eyes, the, the veil that often blocks 
our viewing of the word of God? Would you remove that by the power of your spirit so that we can rightly see, rightly handle, rightly hear your word this morning? Thank you for the comfort that we find here. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together. This is a morning unlike any other, and it will never be repeated. And so we rejoice in the fact that you've allowed us to be here. And now would you give us faithfulness, Lord, as we look to your word. Guide my words as I preach, and guide my brothers and sisters as they hear the word. And in all that we do, may Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name that I pray, amen. We're going to start this morning with a very familiar passage. At least I hope it is familiar to you. So turn first to Matthew chapter 28. This is a text that we know as the Great Commission. And of course, the word commission means like an, an authorization to do something. If you commission a painting to be done, you are giving the authority and the right for that artist to do that painting. Okay, it's, it's an authoritative mission. And so this is, uh, I think, helpful when we see Jesus at the beginning of this in verse 18 reference his own authority in commissioning his disciples in this way. So read along with me, Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now Jesus understands full well that when he gives this commission to his disciples, when he sends them out for the work of preaching the gospel, establishing churches, everything we read about after this point in redemptive history, when he does this, he knows that the result of their work, the result of their carrying out this commission is going to be that they will face not only persecution, and hostility to the gospel, and those kinds of things. But he knows there will be other factors in this. Sickness, loss of familial connection. When they go, they go. And they are leaving behind everything. And so what does he tell them? What does he tell them to comfort their hearts, to sustain them as they go through all these various circumstances of carrying out this commission that he's given to them, he gives them the greatest promise he could have when he says, I am with you always. Now, they didn't probably fully understand the significance of that, and neither would we have in that context. But what Jesus is promising them is that everything they go through, whether it be preaching the gospel or making disciples or recovering from sickness because they were so long without proper nutrition or medical care or whatever the case is, anything they go through, he is there with them. So this not only gives them strength and motivation, but I believe this is a tremendous comfort to these men as they go out knowing they do not go alone, but they go with the presence of Christ. Jesus had told them, earlier in Matthew chapter 10, that on account of their preaching, on account of their ministries, they would be 
dragged before the rulers. They would be flogged in the synagogues. They would face all kinds of things as a result of the sake of his name. And yet in all of those sufferings, in all of those trials, his promise to these people is that he is with them in their suffering. Not removed from them, not watching high from the heavens wondering what's going on down there, but he is with them to the end. And what a tremendous hope and blessing for these Man, Now I start with this example because this really closely parallels everything that we saw last week, right? When we talked about suffering for the gospel, that's what these guys are doing. They are going out for the sake of the name of Christ, for the establishment of local churches, and in so doing, they will suffer. But Jesus says, I am with you. You won't suffer alone. I am with you always. And I mean, we could preach a whole sermon on every single word in that sentence because each one carries so much significance. But what a blessing that while they suffer for the sake of Christ, they do not go it alone, but they are with Christ. Go next to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you're not familiar with this section, this is where Paul is telling his readers about this vision, this revelation that he had received from the Lord and how he was given this physical hindrance, this suffering in his life to keep him from relying on himself and to force his dependence on God. And we pick this up in chapter 12, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness." with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul suffered tremendously in his life and ministry. And yes, much of his suffering can be traced back to his bold proclamation of the gospel. That's where a lot of it came from. But Paul also, just in general, lived a really hard life. Long travel, staying wherever he could in accommodations that were less than ideal, often chained to another soldier because he was on house arrest. You just think about the limitations of what he can do. In fact, there's a lot of historians that think that Paul was so disfigured because of the floggings and the stoning and the beatings that he would have been uncomfortable to even look at. And all of this because he would not keep his mouth shut. So in addition to all these sufferings that come to him for the sake of the gospel, there is all the normal aches and pains and limitations that come from being a 65-year-old man. And Paul says, in all of these things, he has learned to be content and more than that, to rejoice 
because of these weaknesses. And the reason he can say that is because he knows the reality that Christ is with him in those times. He had, and oftentimes writes about, the sweetest communion with his Lord and how God carried him through all of these circumstances. And I think the unique thing about Paul's suffering and the result of him understanding that Christ is with him in those moments is that he is able to verbalize this in the sense that God takes his physical weaknesses and transforms them into spiritual strength. All of the things that Paul suffered in his body were transformed into a kind of boldness spiritually, into a kind of reliance spiritually, into a kind of strength that Paul would not have had were it not for those physical limitations. And the thing that gave him hope to press on in all of these things was the knowledge that Christ was with him. He suffers all things for the sake of the gospel. And his comfort does not come from the fact that, well, maybe in a month or so I'll be free of the pain. Peace for Paul was not absence of trouble. Peace was going through trouble with Christ. And he talks about this all over his letters. So regardless of the origination point of Paul's suffering, be it weakness from hunger, be it uncomfortable places to sleep or not being able to sleep, or it be getting whipped for the sake of the gospel, he knows that Christ is there. And because Christ is there, Paul says, I rejoice in the sense that I am able to bear testimony to the goodness of God by seeing him transform my physical weakness into spiritual strength. What a testimony. I am so jealous of the Apostle Paul and his steadfast reliance on God. But it came because of his knowledge of the nearness of Jesus as he goes through these things. Turn to the book of Hebrews next. Hebrews chapter 13 is the last chapter in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> and the author is giving kind of a bullet point list of instructions. Very similar to like the end of 2 Thessalonians where it's just do this, stay away from this, show love to this person, do these kinds of things. It's just a rapid fire kind of instruction for the readers of this book. So in Hebrews chapter 13, we're getting some of that instruction line by line in the beginning. And in verses 5 through 6, the author sneaks in this tremendously encouraging Old Testament quote and interpretation. So Hebrews chapter 13, <clears throat> starting in verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? <laughs> the motivation for a Christian to look at your circumstances. Like I said, regardless of how you get there, the motivation to look at those things and say, the Lord is my helper. I'm not going to be afraid. He'll carry me through this. That kind of motivation comes from that little phrase at the end of verse 5, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
Are you getting these, these qualifiers in, in, in the Matthew 28? Lo, I am with you always. Hebrews 13, I will never leave or forsake. This is not conditional promise. This is not God telling us through his word, if you will just X, Y, and Z, I'll do it. But if you don't, that's eh, no guarantee. I will never leave. I will always be there. Unconditional promise of the presence of God with us. Now, what is the difference between leaving and forsaking? Why are both these words in this Hebrews passage? They're pretty similar, right? Leave, forsake, leave, forsake. Well, they're slightly different, and they communicate something that I think is really helpful in understanding what is being communicated here. This word translated leave means to to give up, to abandon, to, to let it sink. There's a sense of Cutting the ties and separation. You're not even around anymore. Okay? Leaving. The forsaking is, the, the word means to, to leave something as it is. Uh, you, you leave it alone. It might be injured. It might be hurt, but you just leave it there. So you can be present with somebody, literally, physically present with them, and forsake them. See, see the difference in the words? The leaving is the removal The forsaking is like turning your back and be like, well, I'm just going to ignore what's going on over here. So what we're being told here in the book of Hebrews, when it says that God will never leave us or forsake us, it tells us that not only is the presence of God his nearness to us, but while he is there, he is not passive. He does not stand next to you in suffering and in darkness and in hurt, and fold his arms and say, hmm, that's too bad. That would be forsaking you. Sure, he's there, but he's not doing anything. That's not how God acts. God never leaves you alone. You are never left to your own device as his child, and the presence of God with you means that he is active in your situation. He doesn't stand idly by and watch you spin your wheels and struggle and frustrate yourself and just say, well, that's a bummer. That's not God. God will never, ever leave. And while he is there, he will never turn his back on you. Now, there's some implications for this. And when we come to the table this morning, I'm going to share those. But keep those two leaving and forsaking things in mind. And we'll come back to that when we come to the table this morning. Finally, last text. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Now I saved this for last because it is my favorite of the four. And because this text at the end of Matthew 11 has been cemented in my heart. Because of what God has brought me through in the last years. And I'll share more about that in a moment. And I was preparing this week and thinking about just the, the realness of this text in, in my own heart. And it was a tough remembrance at times, but really sweet. Because oftentimes it takes really difficult circumstances for us to lock on to something. You can hear something, remember it. But once it has been the means of carrying you and supporting you, these texts just become priceless. And that's what this is for me. 
Matthew chapter 11, we'll start in verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What does it mean for Jesus to invite us into the yoke with him? Why use this kind of language? You guys know what a yoke is? It has nothing to do with eggs. A yoke, Y-O-K-E, is the apparatus that you put on usually agricultural animals. Okay, that binds them together and causes them to work in tandem rather than working alone. Anyone ever been to like the Oliver Kelly farm in Elk River there? You can, you can plow with oxen, okay, like they used to do. And they are yoked together. They are bound together. So often what farmers would do is if they had a weaker ox, they would pair it with a stronger one so that the weaker one could be productive and could be useful in the farm. So when we see Jesus inviting us into the yoke, we got to get one thing very clear. Jesus is not the weak party here. Jesus does not need you to come into the yoke so that he can do what he wants to do. Christ invites us in because he is the strong one. And we are the weak. So... What does it mean? When Jesus invites us to get in the yoke next to him, he means that when we suffer with him, when we work with him, when we stop trying to accomplish things on our own but unite ourselves in common goal with him, he will carry us. He will provide to us the kind of strength that the Apostle Paul was talking about. Weakness, strength, weakness, strength. Christ being the strong, us being the weak, and he says, come on in. I'll pull with you. I'll strengthen you. And the nearness aspect of this illustration is so precious. When something is yoked together, it is about as close as could possibly be without being totally united. So all of that imagery is floating around. And, and the reason, the reason that Jesus' yoke is light, that his burden is easy, is not because he has no weight on his shoulders. It is not as if Jesus is just sitting around and saying, oh, well, I don't have anything else to do. I'm going to go find some weakling and I'll just give them a hand for a while. He is carrying all of us, right? We read about this in the scriptures that we are weak, but he is strong. So this is not some kind of a, well, come on in because I don't have much going on. This is Jesus inviting us into the yoke because he is strong. And the reason that his burden is so easy is owing to the never-ending supply of strength that is Christ's due to his divine nature. He is God. This is not some man telling you, hey, come on over here, I'll give you a hand. This is God. It is no light thing to have the Son of God eternally begotten of the Father in the yoke with you. That is no small thing. He is strong. 
You know how the Bible talks about Jesus? That he is the author of our faith. That he is the creator of the universe. He formed worlds and spoke galaxies into existence. He strengthens the weak. He saves the crushed in spirit. He opens blind eyes. And all of this without breaking a sweat. He is food to the hungry and water to the thirsty. He is a firm foundation for those who are struggling. He is the image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God to pray for you until you make it to glory. That is the Jesus that calls you into the yoke with him. That's who he is. Do not get a picture of a weak Jesus here. He is strong. He is with you. In all of that, he is with you. What a blessing. What a blessing. Can you imagine going through what you have gone through in your life without Christ? This reality that Jesus is with us in every circumstance of our life has been the testimony of faithful Christians all through the ages. The church fathers knew this. The early church knew it. The apostles knew it. The prophets knew it. David knew it. My word, you read through the Psalms and you see the language of David talking about the nearness of God and his desire for the presence of God. I just want to read you one psalm. It's all over the psalms, but David says this, Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will guide me. (laughs) No matter where you find yourself, Whether you wake up in a hospital bed or you wake up in a bed alone that you used to share with your spouse, whether the call of God brings you high or takes you low, Christ is with you. There is no need for you to try to shoulder every hurt, every disappointment, every frustration, every failure, every shortcoming on your own. Christ is there, and he will be there today and tomorrow and the next day to the end of the age. So what exactly does this look like? When I say to you, and I show you from the scripture that Christ is with you in your suffering, what does that mean? Is he going to physically manifest himself right next to you? Is he going to audibly speak into your ear? You've heard me use this triad before in application, but I think it's one of the best and encouraging ways for us to think about how God does what he does. So I'm going to say to you that the way you experience the presence of Christ with you during suffering is through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. And I know that sounds like a broken record because I probably say that at least twice a month, but it's true. 
And with all the varied situations and circumstances represented in this room, those are the three main ways that you will experience the presence of Christ with you. Now I want to share with you just one experience from my life. And this is, this is so real. And I know for, for many of us, this, this reality that Christ is with us is, is a tremendous encouragement. And so I just want to close by sharing a brief uh, illustration of this. So from the age of one, I've been a type one diabetic. And, you know, diabetes is kind of a complicating disease. It affects all the different parts of your body. And in 2008, I was at work. I worked at the school. And my left eye just went black. Totally dark. Thought, that's weird. So I went into the eye doctor, and it turns out I had something called diabetic retinopathy, where the blood vessels in your eyes burst and scar tissue forms on your optic nerve. And for the next two years, I had dozens and dozens of injections and laser treatments and surgeries and gas bubbles and laying on my stomach for days at a time and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? By the mercy and the grace of God, he restored my vision. And I can read. I can drive, kind of. Kind of like bumper cars sometimes, but who's counting? But praise God, right? Well, what happens with diabetes is whatever happens to the eyes happens to the kidneys. So almost immediately, when my eyes had been stabilized, we found out kidney failure has started. And over the next eight years, they just gradually failed and failed and failed and failed until the point where transplant was inevitable. And so I had asked a good friend of mine, Josh Lease, many of you know Josh, uh, if he would be tested because he had volunteered a while back. And lo and behold, he was about a perfect match. And uh, we got tested. We went all, all through the stuff at the U of M. And because I had a living donor, you can just schedule the surgery. I mean, it's like saying I want to get my tonsils out, <laughs> only slightly more complicated. So we schedule the surgery. Everyone's excited. We schedule it for March 2020. So you all know what happened in March of 2020. Everything shuts down. And my transplant is deemed non-essential because I have a living donor. And so it gets delayed. And it gets delayed. And we were hoping to have transplant before dialysis. But that wasn't the plan. Um, so, because of these delays, I end up going on dialysis, which was way harder for me than the transplant itself. I don't know why. It's just what happened. So dialysis is a process. They take the blood in your body out of your arm and they put it through an external kidney, like a cleaner, and then it comes back in at another point. Takes about four hours, about three times a week. And I don't know what it was about my addition to the physical effects of this process of getting all your blood externally cleaned. There was this isolation effect because this was spring of 2020. No one could come in with me. I just would get dropped off at the door and there I was. And... Um, So as I I sit in this chair, 
under the most horrible pain I've ever felt in my life. I am completely alone. Physically speaking. But I have to tell you that in those moments, God met me there in ways that I would never have known had it not been for that cursed chair. (laughs) And I'm not telling you this. I, I am not the hero of this story. There's no part of my makeup that's like, boy, I just powered through it and here we are. This was completely an act of God's grace that sustained me. And the way that he did it was through his word, his spirit, and his people. As I'm sitting in that chair, just literally and and metaphorically separated from everyone, God brought to mind song after song after song. And I would put my earbuds in and I would listen to Henry Light saying, when all comforts and helpers flee, help of the helpless, abide with me. And I would listen to Don Moen and I would listen to old songs and new songs and these people singing the truth of God's word. People I will never meet, but the Holy Spirit of God took the word of God and encouraged me in those times. And he can do exactly the same for you. Now that's just my experience. Your experience may be totally different. In fact, one of the most difficult things is when our suffering is not visible. Not all of our suffering is observable by other people. We have internal wrestlings. We have internal suffering and pain and emotions and feelings that we have no idea what to do with. And the temptation is when we suffer in silence to start feeling isolated. To start feeling like no one knows what I'm going through. Nobody cares what I'm going through because no one can see it. But God sees it. Christ sees it. And he is with you in those quiet, private moments of pain. So whether your suffering is on display for everyone to see or whether it is something deep In the recesses of your own soul, nothing is hidden from God. And he will be to you a rock and a refuge and a hope through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. Let's pray. Father, these texts that we've just seen now this morning of your promise to be with your people and and through Christ and through your spirit and your word and all of these things, God, you have promised that regardless of what we go through, regardless of the specific circumstances of our lives, you are with us. For you have said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we will not fear. God, I pray this morning for those who are currently suffering in silence. For those who are dealing with perhaps the effect of sin, maybe somebody else's sin, or just a sense of loneliness or betrayal or hurt from a relationship, God. 
would you remind them that even though their suffering is not visible to the human eye, it is visible to you? And would you be a comfort? And would you grant hope? And would you use your word and your spirit and your people to encourage the hearts of those who on the outside look like everything is fine, but who are boiling inside because of their suffering. Lord, I pray for those who are very publicly and very visibly going through trial right now. And just like Brian prayed, we we remember the many in our congregation who are facing sickness and struggle and wounds. And God, we pray that your hand would be upon our church as we move into the future together and as we comfort one another with the comfort that we ourselves have received from you, God, would we be compassionate? Would we be patient? And would you give us the strength to acknowledge that we cannot carry these things on our own, but we must turn to you, get in the yoke with Christ, and he will carry us. Thank you, Lord, for this comfort of your word. And I pray that you would... Press this deep now into our hearts, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.